0: All right, let me ask you to open your Bibles this morning to two places. We'll be in Matthew chapter 7. To begin with, as you might have expected, Matthew chapter 7, and also Numbers. If you'd get the book of Numbers in your other hand, Numbers chapter 13, Matthew chapter 7. Today we're continuing our series, and we're almost finished with the series on the Sermon on the Mount. We have this sermon and then tomorrow, or next week rather, will be our last sermon in that series. So we have Matthew 7, we'll begin in verse 15 today, and Numbers chapter 13, verse number 23. Matthew 7, 15, and Numbers 13, verse number 23. And Jesus said in verse 15, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Which is where, by the way, I get the title for this week's sermon, Grapes and Figs. Grapes and figs. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Verse 20 says, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And for the next few minutes, we're going to focus in on the grapes and the figs that Jesus mentioned here. Let's bow our heads together. Let's pray and ask for God's help and His blessing. Lord, we come to You in Jesus' name. And Father, we thank You for this privilege to once again assemble together. Father, this is something that we have And I say we, I believe I say this on behalf of of all of us here today. We have come to realize just how important, how special this is. Father, may we never take this opportunity for granted. But Lord, we also know that all is in vain if you do not come and meet with us. That's the purpose, God. Not just to meet one with another, but to also fellowship with you. Please, Lord, simply use me as a vessel this morning. Speak to your people. I believe this is an incredibly important subject. Lord, tell them, communicate to them what they need to know this morning. Not only the ones here, but the ones listening there at home. Have your hand upon all of us. and We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Jesus has mentioned here grapes and figs. In Numbers chapter 13, you have the story where Israel has sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. The purpose of sending the spies was to verify if this was indeed a land of milk and honey, as Moses had told them, as God had promised them. They wanted to see what, what they were up against in this land. Not only the fruit of the land, but also the people. What uh, maneuvers are we going to have to practice to get into the land? So the spies were sent. When the spies came back, they desired to bring evidence of the land. Evidence of God's promise. Look at Numbers 13, verse number 23. It says, And they came unto the brook of Eshcol, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bare it between two upon a staff. That cluster of grapes was so massive, the cluster as a whole, that they had to put it, they hung it on a, on a staff, and two men had to carry it. That, that's a massive amount of grapes. Bear it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates, which I can, if I can just put that in the back of your mind. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And of the figs. I find it interesting that the same grapes and figs that Jesus has mentioned, this is the evidence. It's part of the evidence that the spies brought out of the land of Canaan to show to the rest of the people God's promise of this being a leckerlant. This is a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey. There's grapes and figs and look at the massive fruit that comes from it. Not only did it verify that God was giving them a, a nice piece of land, but it also verified that Moses was a, indeed a prophet of God. Moses was not just selling them uh, some fancy pipe dream. You understand a lot of people will, when they go to sell something, they'll talk it up and make it sound better than it really is. Moses hadn't done that. This verified that Moses was... Indeed, a true prophet. Now, if you would, come back to Matthew chapter 7. As we approach this passage, oftentimes people use these verses to speak about an individual's salvation. How do we verify if somebody is truly saved, is really a Christian? And they turn to this and say, you know them by their fruits. So we look at how this person lives, we look at their profession of faith, and this will verify whether or not they're saved. And we get into a fruit counting contest. Let me first say that it is legitimate, it is legitimate to turn to this passage and to say if somebody is saved, we should expect to see fruit. If the land is all that God said it would be, we should be able to bring forth some grapes some figs, and say, this is what God has promised to do. There should be fruit if you're saved. However, I also want to bring to your attention that when Jesus gave this passage, he did not primarily teach this so that each individual would look for fruit in their own life and say, now I know I'm saved. It is okay to use this principle for that purpose. Are we together on that? But the primary purpose of this passage as you can see in verse 15 beware of false prophets. That's actually the primary theme of this passage. Jesus has just spent this was a long sermon, right? This started back in chapter 5 and he has given us the greatest set of principles to live by that any man has ever ever given. And he knows that all of this work that God can do in a person's heart, if they will apply the words of Jesus, it will completely change their life. All of that can be undone if they fall under the influence of false prophets. And he says, guys, disciples, ladies and gentlemen, please listen to this before you just follow somebody because they sounded good, before you start following these trumped-up promises, please take time to investigate. Look for the grapes and figs. Make sure that these people that you are going to associate with are leading you down the right path. Now, I want to say something just briefly about how we would apply this Personally, If you want to check for your own salvation, judging by the fruits, by how you live, let me say just a few things about that. Next week's sermon, will actually deal more with that. I think the next part of, of the Sermon on the Mount will actually lend itself to talking about that more. Let me just make a few comments about it now. These three statements, I don't think anybody can argue with. Number one, every saved person has two natures. Are we together there? I see a lot of nods. I'm so happy to see nods. Oh, you don't know how much that means to see somebody go, that's right. right." (sighs) I don't I gave up checking for the messages in the comment section, so it's so nice to see nods. Every saved person has two natures. You have the new nature, which is a combination of your quickened spirit, that is your born-again spirit. It is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the new man, the new nature that dwells within. But you also have your old nature, your Adamic, sinful, fleshly nature. Those two natures are in every believer. Yes? Now, statement number two, every saved person, every day, every hour, every minute, has a choice to yield to one of those two natures. We know this, yes. Galatians 5 makes it clear we have two natures. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would two natures are there. Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it clear reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body but yield your members as servants unto righteousness and holiness. Every believer, every moment has a choice. You will yield to the Holy Spirit or you will yield to sin, one of the other. Right, so statement one, I don't think there's any argument, two natures. Statement two, we all have a choice. Statement three, every saved person at some point makes the wrong choice. Right? Wow. I haven't heard amen in a while, but that's a proper moment to say amen. At some point, you're going to make the wrong choice. Let me caution you. I think that some people, when they read Matthew 7... They take the illustration that Jesus gives of a tree and its fruit and they push it a little too far. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The illustration that Jesus gave and the point that he's trying to make is spot on. You know the tree by the fruits. But if you push that to its greatest extent, I believe you're going a step too far, what you're going to end up believing is that the only way to be saved is to be sinlessly perfect. Now, how would we arrive at that conclusion? If I profess that I'm an apple tree, and one day I bear apples, 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 every year, apples, apples, all the time to apples, that's all I have. And then one day, a banana pops out. What would you think of me as an apple tree? You'd think you're a mutant. Something is wrong with this tree. There's apples, apples, boom, a banana, whoa. Something is not, that can't be a real, genuine apple tree, right? You would think all other apple trees just bear apples. This one gave a banana. Something's different. So do you see, if we were to push that illustration to the uttermost extent, we would say a saved person can only do good things And if one bad thing, one anti-scriptural thing pops out, you're not a real Christian. So do you understand how people can get a little carried away with the illustration? What are we supposed to learn from this? A tree, when it bears fruit, it takes time to bear fruit. And what Jesus, I believe, is really trying to get across here is, guys, don't just believe everything you hear. Don't be quick to follow somebody because it sounds good and you know there was a good vibe during the meeting. Take a little time to investigate. Dig a little deeper. Patiently wait and see what kind of teaching, what kind of life is produced in this man's ministry before you get involved. Jesus in verse 15, he's aware that there are wolves that want to destroy his sheep. Jesus is also aware that the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Folks, we are just sheep. We are defenseless without the great care of our shepherd. Our shepherd has not left us defenseless. He has given us instructions, and if we apply them, we can keep ourselves in the safest place possible. And the safest place we can be, right, is sheltered under the protection of his words. He's given us the instructions for how to deal with wolves walking about, with the lions lurking in the shadows. So I want to say three things about this warning that Jesus has given in Matthew chapter 7. First of all, I want to talk about how. How we can know these wolves. How do we spot them? Well, you you can see it all through the passage. Verse 16, you'll know them by their fruits. Verse 20, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. The command is to know them. How do we know it? Careful consideration. Careful consideration. Now, he's told us to look for grapes and figs. Two things, grapes and figs. I am going to say that there are two things you need to consider when somebody else is approaching you and claiming to be giving you God's truth. Two things. Consider what they say. Consider what they do. Their profession and their practice. Consider the truth of their statement and the application of the statement. Maybe I can refer this to another verse. John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus said, God is, a, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That spirit and truth, I believe it fits perfectly with the grapes and figs idea. Truth, that's what a person would claim to believe. That's what he or she teaches. And then spirit, that's the, that's the zeal, that's the action that they put to the words that they're giving you. So we need to examine both. James, in chapter 2, I think does a wonderful job of summing this up. James said it like this. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You see, what James is warning the people against is don't just say it, also do it. If you say and don't do, there's just grapes, no figs. Something's wrong. We need to see both. We need to look for both parts of this. Uh, can you take your Bibles? Hold Matthew 7. Look at Luke chapter 6, please. Luke chapter 6. We need to have careful consideration. Careful consideration. Luke chapter 6. And look with me, please, at verse number 43. This is what we call a parallel passage. What we're going to read is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. But mind you, it's actually a different time and a different place. But the information is very much the same. Uh, As you're finding that, let me remind you of something that happened in the Old Testament. When the Israelites were marching through the wilderness, of course, they were given several commands. One of them was that the priest had to have a special garment made for him. And at the bottom of his garment, he had a ribbon, a blue ribbon around the bottom. And then there were decorations around the bottom of his garment. There was a bell followed by a pomegranate. Remember that word in the back of your mind? Bell and a pomegranate. Then another bell and a pomegranate. A bell and a pomegranate all around the bottom. So everywhere that high priest went, he was making noise. Right? Everywhere he went, he was making noise. I, I, I think that lends itself to pretty good preaching. Everywhere you go, you ought to be telling people about Christ. Somebody says, Mr. High Priest, why are you making so much noise? God told me to. God told me to have these bells all around everywhere I go. I can't hide it right? I can't hide it. I'm working for God. I'm one of God's servants. Now, the, the bell was followed by a pomegranate. You know what that pomegranate is? That was part of the evidence that they brought back from the land of Canaan. So for every noise you make, there needs to be evidence to back that up. You make the profession, now make the application. Make the profession, make the application. Preach the truth, practice the truth. Preach it, practice. Preach it, practice. Do you see how the two work together? Look, let's look together in Luke chapter 6, verse number 43. Jesus said, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. Bramble is another way of speaking of thistles. Verse number 45. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Now, The reason I've turned you to Luke is because we have this additional statement at the end of verse 45. When we speak of fruit, right, we're not only looking at what he does, we're also listening to what he says. Out of his heart, his mouth will speak. So we need to hear what he says and then patiently wait, carefully consider, does he practice what he preaches? If I can say it this way as well, If you apply what he preaches, will it lead to godly living? The Apostle Paul in Titus chapter one and verse one, he says, If you want to know if I'm a real apostle, he says there's two ways to check it. You can check it according to the faith of God's elect. That is, my belief system is the same as the body of Christ. Our our teachings are consistent. And number two, you can check it by the truth which is according to godliness. He said, look at what I'm teaching and see if it produces a godly life. Now, see, that takes time. That takes careful consideration. You can come back to the book of Matthew. I'd like to show you a couple things back here. As you're coming back to Matthew, you read in the Bible about grapes and figs in many places. And there are many people that will say things that sound Christian-ish. And there are many people that can put on the garb, right? The wolf can put on the sheep's clothing and from a distance without careful consideration you would be tempted to think this looks legitimate it sounds legitimate looks like a grape you know, you can hold it and it kind of feels like a grape but once you pop it in your mouth and take a bite you might find out as the Bible says in some places the Bible speaks about sour grapes remember reading about that? People eating sour grapes and other people's teeth set on edge? <laughs> that false teacher might be given sour grapes and it's gonna set your teeth on edge. The Bible speaks in Isaiah 5 about wild grapes. The Bible in Jeremiah speaks about vile figs. So it can be a fig, but there's something corrupt about the fig itself. Why bring this up? Because when we're considering something, we need to understand our enemy is very crafty. He can make it look like the real thing and you wouldn't know that it's wrong until you taste and see and go, oh, wait a minute, now that I've, I've dived in a little bit, now that I've investigated, something's not right with this. Let me give you two indicators that I believe you'll see amongst all false teachers Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, look with me at verse number 1, Matthew 6 and verse number 1, it says here, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. I want to just emphasize that phrase, to be seen of them. One thing common to all false prophets, to all wolves, they want to be famous They want to be seen. They want to draw away large crowds after themselves, not because they're trying to help the multitude. The bigger the crowd, the more fame that they have. You see? You can't jump to the conclusion and say, because this man has a following, he's bad. You have to take time and investigate, what is this person's intention? Is he truly trying to help the people? Or is he doing this just to be seen of men? say, how will we know? I'll tell you, I'll give you a tip on on how you can see it. Does he tell the people what they need to hear or what they want to hear? Does he do what's popular or does he do what's right? Is his preaching, does does he preach according to the fads? You understand what I mean by that? You know, what's popular in the time, whatever, you know, the buzzwords, is that what they preach or do they just preach the whole counsel of God? Now, another thing you need to look for amongst false prophets, they're out for fame. And another thing in Matthew 6, verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If the eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, that's greed, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. So people will use God, who is the light, to achieve financial goals so a lot of the time when you find a false preacher he's out for fame and he's out for fortune and you can see this throughout the new testament when you go to first timothy chapter 6 paul drives it home in a big way and says they they believe that gain is godliness and they emphasize the prosperity that you can achieve if you follow god guys that is not it's the exact opposite of what jesus emphasized he said, "To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the, the, the physical things would come later. The emphasis is on that walk with God." Now back in Matthew chapter seven, let me point something else out. It says, in verse 16 and verse 20, we've already looked at it, we need to know, we need to know them. We need to know them. Uh, before we move to my second point, I want to throw this in here. This is why, and forgive me, everybody at home, I'm so sorry, but I've got to say this. This is what's so dangerous about YouTube churches. Right? It, it is, if I can say it like this, a necessary evil. I get it. This is the best we can do to minister to people, and many people use it in a good way. It can be used as a tool. I understand that, but also many people abuse it Many people replace the local assembly with just a a sermon off of YouTube. One of the advantages of actually coming together consistently is you get to know the person who's talking to you. You get to see not only other people and how they apply it, you get to see this man and his motives, his heart, his actions. You need to know. Paul even says this in 1 Thessalonians 5. To know those that labor among you for the Lord. You, you, this is the advantage of a local assembly. You actually get to know people. Now, point number two. Number one, you have to have careful consideration. But point number two, I want to answer the question, why? Why is Jesus emphasizing this so much? The enemy, the enemy that we have, he, he's, there's cunning craftiness about our enemy. We see this in verse 15. He is a wolf, but he comes to you in sheep's clothing. The devil doesn't play fair. I've said this for years. The devil doesn't walk up to you and go, ah, I'm the devil. Ah, I want you to follow me. He he doesn't do that. He comes to you dressed like a sheep. The devil is the, the quintessential con man and he doesn't, it doesn't bother him at all that he tells you lies in the name of God to get you to follow the wrong path. He is the master of all counterfeits. Now, when you, when you say stuff like that, some people get a little panicked and say, but eesh, if that's the case, if our enemy will do anything, how am I ever going to survive? Right? Can we all admit this morning the devil's smarter than us? And the devil has a plan to destroy us. He he is the lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. How can I possibly stay safe? When Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, your adversary the devil walks about. The next verse is, wherefore resist him steadfast in the faith. How are we going to overcome him? Get well grounded in what you should believe. If you say, what should I believe? That's why we've had this series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what kind of truth leads to the godly life, it's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That is why at the end of Jesus' sermon, he says you need to build your house on a rock. And that rock... Those are the words of Christ. And if your life is built on that, it's stable, and you need not worry when the storms happen, when the winds begin to blow. Now, you do remember that at the end of Matthew 7, yes? Jesus talked about the wind blowing, the rain coming down, and the house won't fall. Can I ask you to look at Ephesians chapter 4? Hold Matthew, Ephesians chapter 4. Our enemy is cunning and he's crafty. Ephesians chapter 4 look with me at verse number 14 Paul says here that we henceforth be no more children so there needs to be spiritual growth tossed to and fro and carried about with every what wind that's what Jesus said at the end of his sermon on the mount watch out for this strong wind that's going to blow get well grounded in my words So he says here, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, look at the next phrase, and cunning craftiness, whereby they, speaking of false teachers, they lie in wait to deceive. Just like a lion, right? When it finds its prey, it walks about, when it sees what it's going for, then it crouches down and waits for the right moment and then springs out. But when it springs up, it doesn't. Ah, that the lion in the wild would do that, but our enemy's too smart. But he jumps out and says, "Hello, welcome to church. So glad you're here. Sow your seeds of faith, and God will prosper you." Right, and he unfolds it in such a way. You go, man, this is outstanding. I'm going to get everything I want. Let me tell you two things that the devil will will employ to confuse people. Number one, apathy. Apathy. Number two, apostasy. Those are two things the devil will try to do to a a saved person, right? If, If you're saved, the devil cannot get to your soul. What he can do is cause you to be completely useless for God. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But he wants to stop the grapes and figs from coming forth in your life. So if he can get you under the influence of a false idea, false teaching, if he can get your life pointed in the wrong direction, not seeking the kingdom of God first, but something else, you know what he might do? He might try to choke the word with a bunch of thorns. You know what the thorns are? Cares of this world, pleasures of this life, the love of riches, those things. He wants the thorns to spring up. The fruit was starting to grow, but then the thorns came and choked it. He said, what's that? That's apathy. That's apathy. Apathy is, I know the truth, but I don't have enough zeal to do anything with it. This is the Laodicean church. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You know what Jesus told that church? Be zealous therefore and repent. What did they have? Knowledge with no zeal. Knowledge with no zeal. Now that's one thing the devil will do in a saved person's life. He'll get If you happen to find the truth, then he will try to suck the zeal out of your life so that you do nothing with the truth. Number two, apostasy. It's the exact opposite of apathy. Apathy, knowledge, no zeal. What's apostasy? Zeal, no knowledge. This is what Paul said about the Israelites in Romans chapter 10. He said, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Haven't you ever met somebody like that? They are super excited about this false teaching that they've stumbled across. And they don't hesitate to tell everybody they know, look at what I've found. They have zeal, but they're, they're missing the truth of the Bible. I believe, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Let me... You know what? I, I have a minute or two. Can I do this with you? I, I, instead of Romans 16, we'll end up there. But uh, since we have the opportunity now to... I can watch you turn to, page to page. That's exciting for a preacher to watch, to watch his church members go through their Bible. That's just something special. Uh, look with me at Romans 3. I didn't know if I would have time to dig this deep into it, but I will now. Uh, Romans chapter 3. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul did throughout the, the book of Romans. He, Paul knew the power of apostasy. Ideas drive our lives. You put the wrong idea in a man's head, Right? He can have all the good intentions in the world, but he'll end up in the wrong place. It starts with a correct belief system, what the world calls a worldview. You've got to set that straight. You've got to get the dial set right. In the book of Romans, Paul, over and over again, points out false teachings that were circulating in the early church, and he corrects them. But he does so every time with the phrase, God forbid, God forbid which means, of course not. Now watch how he did it. Romans 3, look with me at verse 3. For what if some did not believe? So he's talking about the Jews. The Jews, God used them to produce the Bible, the Old Testament. And some Jews did not believe the Bible. So he says, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So the idea that was circulating was, The nation of Israel produced the Bible, but there are many in the nation of Israel that don't believe what they've produced. So because the producers of it are corrupt, that means the revelation found in it is also corrupt. That's the conclusion some people came to. And Paul says in verse 4, God forbid, that's not the right conclusion. Just because some people don't believe it doesn't make it any less true. Let God be true, he says, but every man a liar. So just because men sometimes get it wrong, don't blame that on the revelation of the words of God. There's another one in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? Here's the false teaching, verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why, am I yet, uh, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Now see, this is what people were saying. If you lie, eventually God will prove that you lied. And when God proves that you were wrong and he was right, God will get glory. Ergo, my lie abounds to God's glory. So lying's okay. Now, now obviously, we see how wrong that is. But people were getting these false ideas in their head, taking things too far. And these apostasies, these heresies, were causing certain people to say, okay, it must be fine then if I sin. It must be okay to say we can ignore the Bible because there are Jews that ignore it. Well, that's the wrong conclusion. If you start down that path, you're going to end up with a ruined life. In verse 8, Paul concludes, And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. He really punctuates that and says that that is a ridiculous idea to say sinning is okay. You can see it again in Romans 6 verse 1. Paul is just given a passage about the law manifested sin but where sin abounded grace did much more abound. So as a result of that, Romans 6 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you see the false teaching that That was coming up people said okay well if we're under grace and grace covers my sin I would like to have a lot of God's grace how do I get a lot of it well I must need a lot of sin because the more sin I have the more grace abounds so I'll just keep on sinning so that I can keep on experiencing grace that's that's ridiculous so Paul said in verse 2 God forbid of course not we don't believe that. You can see it again in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. You see how they're coming to the wrong conclusion. Paul wants to stop that as quickly as possible. See it again in Romans 7. Romans 7 verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Sin. Now, how would people arrive at that conclusion? Because of the law, right? Because God said, this is the way it should be done. Once God creates a standard or a mark, now there's something to miss. And when you miss the mark, you've sinned. So some people made the conclusion because of the mark. If if the mark was somewhere else, right, I wouldn't miss it. If there was no mark at all, how could I sin? So that must mean that the law, which is the mark, the standard, the, the law is actually the problem. The law brings death, it brings sin. And that's not what Paul was teaching at all. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid uh, God forbid, nay I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. You can see it again in verse thirteen, same principle. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. It's not the law that killed you. It was the sinful nature that inclined you to rebel against the law. So you need to assign blame in the proper place. The law, as Paul says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. The law, what is it, verse number 12? The law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. There's nothing wrong with the laws that God gave. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. The problem is the sinful nature. But some people were saying, well, we can just throw the law out and ignore it because the law is what caused all the problems. That's a heresy. You don't want to throw out the law. There's a lot of information that you can learn in that. Look at Romans 9. Romans 9, Paul is just given this difficult passage about God promising a seed to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he talks about how they were elected, how they were chosen. And from this, some people developed a false idea. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid the idea came about that maybe God loved Jacob for no good reason and hated Esau for no good reason, that he did so unconditionally. If he did, if God just randomly picked and said, I love you and not you, too bad, deal with it. That's unrighteous. Uh, fo- come on now, let's think this through. Could you apply that in your life? What does it mean to be godly? The word godly means godlike. So would that be godly behavior if I came today and said, okay, I like you, I hate you. You can stay, you got to go. And somebody said, but why, pastor? Because, I said. Just because. No, no, none of you would accept that. I don't think any of you would apply that in your own life to randomly love some and hate others. And we would certainly not try to attribute that to God. That's what Paul's saying. God forbid, we we wouldn't dare claim that God just unconditionally loved one and hated the other. You see the same thing down in verse number 19 and 20. Thou wilt then say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? This was the false teaching coming from coming from the passage before about hardening Pharaoh's heart. Who hath resisted his will? Some people thought, well, if if God planned it, then it's got to happen. And God has planned everything in our lives. And since we can't resist God's plan, what what can we do? Now, this is the one time Paul did not use the phrase God forbid. In verse 20, he says, nay. He just says, no, that's not true. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest? against God. The will of God can be resisted. You do have a choice. Yes, there are things that God has promised he will do. There are things he has planned to do, but those are things that God will do. God has not already chosen what you are going to decide. Does he know what you'll decide? Yes. He has foreknowledge, but he didn't make you choose it. Folks, think about this. If God has planned out every part of your life, doesn't that take all accountability out of your hands? And how could God hold you accountable? You didn't do it. It was His plan. God, therefore, becomes the author of sin. Do you see how one apostasy can lead you down a very dangerous path? And over and over again in the book of Romans, Paul is trying to dodge these spiritual landmines. Watch out for these false teachings. You don't want to get this wrong concept of God because if you think God is this kind of God, it's going to change the way you live. Then you will start randomly liking people and hating others. You're ending up in the wrong place. How many of you have heard this phrase? This is a Spanish phrase, but I think it's all over the world. Que sera, sera. You've heard it in the song form, right? Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. it's, It's the Spanish with the English translation. Que sera, sera means whatever will be, will be. That is that's not true. You can change what will be. You can change it today. If you've never been saved, you can ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And if you're genuine about that from the heart, you change your eternal destiny. That's up to you. That's up to you. It's God's will that every person is saved. Amen? Every person to be saved. That's God's will. But you also have some responsibility in that. Now, just for the sake of time, there are other examples. Turn to Romans 16. In verse number 17, Romans 16, verse 17, Paul concludes this book by saying, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. You see what he's told them to do? When you find a false teacher, you look for the grapes and figs, and all you found was thorns and thistles. Mark them. Point them out, and then avoid them. Verse 18, here's some of the indicators. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, even though they might talk about him. They might preach in his name and work in his name, but look look at the rest of the verse. They serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, fame and fortune and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. They will tell the people what the people want to hear rather than telling them what they need to hear. Number one, careful consideration. Matthew 7, grapes and figs, we we have to carefully consider it. Number two, our enemy is cunning and he's crafty. We need to be aware of the devil's devices. We need to watch out for it. And l- lastly, if you come back to Matthew 7, we've talked about how to recognize false prophets. We've talked about why he's cunning and crafty. Or I, actually, I'm, forgive me, that's the what. He... he our enemy is cunning and crafty. And now we'll talk about the why. There, there are colossal consequences. Colossal consequences. I'm going to double up on my C's here. You've noticed all my points start with C, right? Okay. It's the continuation of Christianity. The colossal consequences is the continuation of Christianity. Now watch how this works. If the devil was not able to blind you sufficiently so that you never receive the gospel. That's his plan A. Blind the minds of them which believe not lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. That's plan A. But what if plan A fails and you get saved? Then he goes to plan B. You have the light of Jesus Christ inside of you. Now he wants to make that light cease to shine. Let it stop. Let it die with you. So in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, did you notice in verse 13, if the salt loses its savor, what good is it? It's of no use. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. Don't hide it. Do you see that? Look at verse 15. You don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. You put it where everybody can see it. It benefits everybody in the house. Do you see that? Look at verse 16. Let your light so shine before men. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now that I'm saved, I want the light to shine. I want the fruit to come forth. For what, what, What's the purpose of that? Does it bear evidence? Does it give me evidence that I am saved? Yes. I do personally benefit from that. But that's not the whole story. Just like those spies came back with grapes, figs, and pomegranates, they showed it to the entire nation and said, look at what God has promised. This is the land. Now, they also came back talking about giants and discouraged the people. When you bring the report to the people of this nation, to the people around you, make sure you bring the proper report. You want to bring forth the fruit so that other people can taste and see that the Lord is good. They need to hear the right thing. They need to see the right thing. They, they can recognize that light shining and they will glorify God because of what He's done in your life. So the idea of bringing forth fruit, it is not just to benefit you, but it is the continuation of Christianity. It is evidence that what Jesus said works. And that by being born again and submitting to the Holy Spirit, it does completely change and renovate your life. If you profess to others, I am a Christian, and they patiently and carefully consider your life, and all they see is thorns and thistles, they see you entangled with the affairs of this life, you know what they're going to gather? This Christianity thing must not be that legitimate. And Christianity, at least in your sphere, ceases right there. So the continuation of Christianity, there are colossal consequences to you bearing the right fruit. It starts with you subjecting yourself to the right teaching, the right preaching, and applying that. Jesus has properly warned. He realizes If you look at Matthew 7, verse number 6, Matthew 7 and 6, he mentioned it earlier on in this chapter, give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Most of you, I assume, you've been following along with the live streams. So you remember covering this verse. I took one week just on this verse. The dogs, that's false teachers, false preachers. Cast, not, uh, uh, cast ye your pearls before swine. He says, don't do that. The swine and the dogs are false teachers and false preachers. Why is Jesus so concerned about it now at the end of the sermon? After all the work that he put into the sermon, and he's about to put three and a half years of himself into his disciples, he does not want somebody else to come along and undo all that hard work. Guys, the same is true. I would not be a good shepherd if I didn't share the warning with you. The devil wants to prevent you from being saved, but if he can't prevent that, he wants to prevent you from getting the truth to others. Be careful for yourself. And in verse 6, make sure the people you are affecting are not subject to dogs and swine. Because he says at the end, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Do you see who gets affected? You get affected and them. The other people that you witnessed to, that you professed you professed to them to have a knowledge of the truth, you're affecting so many people. There are colossal consequences to this. Next week we're going to touch more I'm down in verses 21 to 23. We'll look more at the evidence of your personal salvation. But I want to end off this sermon by asking you to examine your heart. Examine your heart. We need two things. We need grapes and figs. We need a profession. We need practice. Are you practicing what you preach? I I know most of you, and I've heard your story of how you got saved. I want you to just consider for a moment how your life is affecting others. Can they see the grapes and figs that should come with salvation we want Christianity to be able to continue on through you down through the next generation All right, I'm going to ask you all if you would stand with me and let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed and as normal give you a moment just to think on this you can pray silently and I will pray as well and dismiss us And as I dismiss, I just want to remind you that we'll be filing out this door to my left, to your right, and we'll file out one row at a time. We'll direct traffic as we go. I I, I have to be cautious not to overstep my boundaries. The last thing I want you to walk away thinking is that The only source for biblical knowledge that you have is is this pulpit. That's that's not the case. There are many, many places, many, many men that can give you a lot of good stuff. And I recommend listening to good preaching, not just mine. But I also would like for you, as disciples of Christ, to have a discerning heart to be cautious about what you, what you expose yourself to. To be aware that the devil is not going to take your spiritual growth lightly. He will do what he can to stop you. Be aware of that. Father, thank you this morning for your help. Thank you for the warning you've given us. Sometimes, Father, I think all of us, myself included, we take the enemy for granted. Lord, I thank you for giving us the resources we need to overcome this enemy. We have no need to panic. You are the great shepherd. Thy rod and and thy staff, they comfort me. Help us, Lord, to not only know what you said, but to apply it. We want other people to see the difference that you can make in our lives. Let them see the grapes and the figs. Father, thank you. What a privilege it was today to be able to meet together again. And I pray that you'd see these folks home safely. Bless this day, especially the fathers today, God. Thank you for them and would you help all of us to be better dads as the year progresses. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.